Hello and welcome to Time in the Market, an Invesco podcast series for UK professional investors. I'm Ben Gutteridge, your host, a failed TV celebrity desperate for a bit of attention, but also an investment director from within Invesco's multi-asset strategies division. In this series, we'll be interviewing some of the highest profile names from in and around the financial industry and from both within and without Invesco. But before the action begins, we want to stress this interview should not be considered as investment advice and remind you that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Finally, we would encourage you to listen to some further important information immediately following the interview. Thank you and on with the show. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to our first Time in the Market podcast of 2024. And what a way to kick off as we welcome an industry icon, a uh, status earned for both his investment insight and his endless charm. It's Jim Reed, Deutsche Bank's Global Head of Macro Research. Jim, what an introduction. Thanks so much for sparing your time. How are you doing? Uh, very good. I'm all the better for hearing that introduction. I'd, I'd like to take you around everywhere with me. Well, that's a conversation we can certainly have another time, Jim, as I'm sort of generally thrilled to get some, some time with you. And, uh, you know, we, we can all appreciate how busy you are, given your commitments both inside and outside of uh, Deutsche Bank. So we'll get straight into it, though. But before we get into the sort of conversation on interest rates and soft landing and, and investment strategy, is, is sort of the form here for us to kick off with a, a prefer or defer opener. These are sort of 10 closed questions where we ask you to give us your preferred option, or if it's too tight or too difficult, you can just uh, defer. But it gives us a chance to know you a little more as an investor, but also as a person. Of course, you reveal lots in your early morning read, but uh, it should, should still be a bit of fun. Are you, are you up for it, Jim? I, I, I hope so. Yeah, I'll give it a go. <laughs> okay, let's give it a go. Right, let's begin. Equities or bonds? Uh, I suppose for the long run, it has to be equities. Well, I would say I bought a government bond for the first time in my life uh, last year, So, but equities for the long run. Investment grade or high yield? Uh, at the moment, investment grade. Short duration, long duration? Uh, short duration. Dollar or euro? Probably dollar at the moment for a, for a trade. Uh, EM or DM? <laughs> uh, I'd probably go DM for now. Okay. An early morning round or an early morning read? Early morning round at every time. <laughs> pedals or skis? Uh, pedals is safer on my knees. That rhymes as well. <laughs> Nunez or Diaz? Uh, Nunez. Volkswagen or Porsche? I've only owned one of those two, and I'll leave it hanging which one it was, but, but it, was the, the, it was the former. <laughs> okay. Flying with children or broken arm? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't be able to play golf with the latter, so I can just about play golf with the former. Uh, okay, well, not nicely done, Jim. A great sport. Really appreciate that. I think I'd agree with you on, on most of that, perhaps other than the uh, the final question, given my recent experiences. But uh, look, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, uh, Jim. We'll pivot now. Not even give you time to to catch your breath. We're going to pivot to the more in depth uh, investment conversation. And look, I'm sure many of the audience, certainly, I've been reading some of your uh, recent research, and uh, one of the bigger pieces, more prominent pieces, was your efforts to highlight sort of the tension in markets between what seems to be an anticipation of a, of a soft landing versus the challenge of some inconsistent data, but certainly history as well. Sort of thinking about the soft landing prospects, what, what, what are you looking at that seems to be some of the more convincing arguments as to why that might materialise? Yeah, I think, I think the most convincing argument you, you put forward for a soft landing is that inflation has fallen a, a lot quicker than virtually 
well, virtually everybody expected maybe 12, 18 months ago. And obviously the Fed has hiked, or the central banks generally have hiked rates aggressively. So I think the market 12, 18 months ago was, was thinking that to get inflation down to the level we have now, you would probably have to take a lot of unemployment pain. And at the moment, that hasn't happened. So inflation is coming back down to target. Unemployment hasn't budged. Financial conditions are fairly loose. So if you were just looking at the data in front of your eyes, then the soft landing argument looks very compelling. Okay, well, let's immediately sort of flip to the to the contrary then and uh, look a little perhaps beyond the data. What, what, what's giving you, well, looking at other elements of the, the, the data, what, what, what's giving you some anxiety about the prospects for a, a soft landing? And, and is there anything you're sort of looking at that threatens or is in, increasingly threatening the prospect of a, of a recession? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm an economic historian by background. That's what I study in, and I tend to bring a lot of that into my work. And I, I suppose there's still a lot of historical indicators that I can point to that have only been this bad in a recession or predict one in the months ahead. So and the first thing you'd say is the lag of monetary policy. It would actually be quite early for a recession to have started already. Now, we're coming into a period now where historically – a lot of recessions have happened this far past the first hike in a cycle. But you know, before the start of this year, there weren't many, if that makes sense. So you're entering a period now where the, 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 the lag of monetary policy starts to increase the probability of a recession. So ironically, this time last year, the risk of a recession was fairly low in the first six months of last year, given the lag of policy. That was when most people were most concerned about it. Ironically, now history was said that lag should be starting to come through. And that's when people aren't worried about uh, a recession. Yield curve uh, still inverted. Yield curve has probably had the best track record of predicting the US cycle. So that's an indicator that still worries me. The fact that money supply growth is negative in most of the major economies worries me. And the fact that the bank bank lending standards are still very tight and at recessionary levels. So a lot of these things are things that have historically guided us towards a, a recession, uh, and they're still looking worrying. So, uh, yeah, so um, history suggests it would be in keeping with history if a recession were to sort of materialise in and around sort of, sort of now-ish. But not necessarily that it's your view, but why might it be different this time? Are there, is there, is there, are there reasons you think to believe that the economy can be more resilient to the, to the rate hikes that we've seen? Well, obviously, you could argue in the US, which is probably the main swing factor globally, the consumer is, is very uh, protected by having basically refixed their mortgages on 30-year rates that were anywhere between you know high twos and high three percent. So most of the US market is on 30-year fixed at a very much lower rate than the uh, current prevailing rates in, in the market today. So you could argue that is is a potential this time is different moment. You could argue that a lot of the inflation was due to supply side. I would argue if you've thought that, then, wow, rates are far, far too high now. If you thought um, if you yeah. thought inflation was only supply side, rates are far, far too high. So I, I think that argument only has limited ability to, to, to be true. But that would be an argument uh, used. And I suppose there's always a chance that you can perfectly calibrate policy to the exact level you need to calibrate a soft landing. Now, I would argue that is always difficult because the lags of policy, and I would say in this cycle, that is quadruply difficult because 
the forces were so large here. The the helicopter money drop was just the, the biggest helicopter money drop we've seen in history, which was trying to offset COVID, which was trying to offset the supply chains. And then we had interest rate uh, hikes where I don't think any central bank had a clue what the right number was, but they just had to raise rates. So we've had kind of forces opposing in each direction that could have perfectly calibrated together to get inflation at 2%. It's possible. It takes a lot of kind of uh, faith in happen chance to kind of believe it. The tone suggesting a, a bit of scepticism that a soft landing might be, might be achieved. We'll come back to that, uh, I guess, in a moment, as we might sort of refer to how you're investing in and around that, uh, that backdrop. But uh, referring to a comment you made about some who may consider sort of supply chain issues being sort of, uh, or supply side being the only sort of source of inflationary pressure, and your, your scepticism of that suggests, you know, that demand has played a part. And of course, it could be, rather than recession, m- maybe sort of a distant prospect in your mind, that like, inflation comes returning back. It does seem to have been an increasing probability of late, but although perhaps, as I said, not the sort of dominant narrative at the moment. But do, do you think there is a risk here of sort of an early turn in policy or a too early turn in policy that might deliver some reflationary or inflationary resurgence and inflation risks? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complicated picture because there are different time horizons. So I do think most of the inflation we saw was demand-led. And I don't mean demand by the economies in wonderful shape. I just mean demand by the fact that there was a helicopter drop of money, which massively increased the money supply in the global economy. And there was too much money chasing too few goods. And I appreciate the supply side did have an element in in the too few goods part of that. But without that huge drop of helicopter money, you wouldn't have had the inflation you, you, you saw in this cycle. And I would argue that where we are now is that you've seen the biggest tightening of monetary policy in 40 years. So you have been taking out that money from the system. So I think there are justifiable reasons why inflation has been coming down because of tighter policy. And, you know, I, I, I am an R over this, but I think on balance, inflation probably will be fairly well behaved. Obviously, then if the if central banks cut rates uh, aggressively uh, and too aggressively, you, you might find that because wages haven't, won't, ever have corrected back down to where they were pre-pandemic, you can start to create a bit more demand-led inflation that resurrects itself. But I think that's more of a 25 and beyond matter rather than a 24. I think inflation generally will behave okay in in 24. Okay, well, uh, touching on, remaining on the subject of inflation, of course, perhaps they're all difficult questions, but geopolitical ones I always consider some of the most difficult. But how are you and your, your team sort of managing that, what seems to be, on balance, sort of a, uh, a comfortable opinion that inflation might be behaved against these sort of geopolitical shipping challenges and other ones that are, that are sort of percolating? Well, the first thing to say is I think geopolitics means that structurally inflation should be higher going forward. I mean, the, the globalization era that lasted probably 1980 to, to the end of the last decade really was a big factor in driving down uh, inflation, as I think was uh, demographics. I think the market has totally got demographics wrong in the last several years in the sense that the very good demographics we had was actually disinflationary because we had a huge abundance of people in the workforce that was depressing global 
manufacturing wages. And I think a combination of deglobalization with with more tensions uh, everywhere and the fact that demographics are getting worse means that workers probably will command structurally higher pay going forward, manufacturing workers, because globalization isn't quite as tight knit. And also there are less workers. So, you know, the supply of workers goes down, the price of them goes up. So I think structurally, Geopolitics and deglobalization and demographics will lead to a structurally slowly high rise in inflation or higher inflation over the years ahead. And you can throw in fiscal spending on green issues, climate issues, defense, etc. to the mix. So I do think we are in a more inflationary environment. But in, in the short term, obviously, tight monetary policy can offset that. Obviously, you mentioned that the recent geopolitics, obviously, the, the Red Sea problems at the moment are causing freight prices to, to spike enormously. The only thing I would say at the moment is that at the moment, that is one choke point in the global economy. And the global economy has, you know, loads of ability and areas to transport goods around. So if it, if it's isolated to one choke point and doesn't get any more severe than this, then I don't think it has much effect on inflation. If it's the start of a bigger problem, then clearly all bets are off. And I think you would have to say in the next decade, the geopolitics means that you are probably going to get these events. And there's always a risk that they come together and manifest in something bigger. I, I, but as we stand at the moment, what's going on in the Red Sea if it stopped here, wouldn't be particularly inflationary. Okay, well, so not, not, notwithstanding the risk that the, the geopolitics does deteriorate around sort of shipping, your, as you said, your, your view is on balance that inflation should be relatively well behaved this year, though you, you highlight the inflationary risks into the future relative to, to the past. But just thinking about investment strategy in and around that view, do you think, you know, you have some discomfort with the soft landing narrative, but do you think like it's a reasonable starting point for investment strategy at the moment, given how data might unfold in the sort of short term. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the interesting thing, if you look at the, the last two years, which is the period where rates have gone up, and unexpectedly, I mean, at the end of 21, you know, just over two years ago, 10-year treasury yields were 1.5%, oscillating around that. And most people thought the Fed might raise one or two times, but we were in a low yield environment, pretty much in perpetuity. And then from the start of 22, massive repricing of yields and rates across the board. So the start of 22 marks the period we moved into this higher yield environment. 2022 was pretty awful for most investments. 2023 was brilliant for most investments. But if you net them out, actually, it's very difficult to find a global asset that has outperformed T-bills. You know, with the recent run-up in tech, that has edged above it. it. It was only in the last couple of weeks it's edged above it. But generally, T-bills have, have been a pretty good investment over the last couple of years against bonds, equities, uh, etc. And I suppose you've got to make a decision. Are you now breaking out into a much more risk-on environment or should we see the world in a kind of a, a bigger picture period where we've struggled in this higher yield environment? Um, at the moment, given the short end yields are, are, are very high, I suppose in, in our credit portfolio, we're saying that the best thing to do is to try to buy short dated investment grade. So you're, you're picking up the higher yield and you're getting a bit of spread on top of that. And, and you know, that can get you a level of return. That, you know, two and a half years ago, people would have 
bitten your hand off for. So it's not the most exciting, but it feels a risk reward trade that gives you uh, an ability to sleep at night, if that makes sense. Well, no, I can well, well understand that, and uh, I'm sure clients can uh, as well, and appreciate your uh, ang- angle on that. I, I think in, re- in relation to credit spreads, uh, perhaps the shorter duration preference may mitigate this to some to some degree. But do you think s- spreads look reasonably attractive or not? I mean, given the prospect of like recession, as, as you say, aren't uh, the, the prospects of recession? It's not immaterial that risk. Are spreads looking a little tight? Well, I suppose the way credit spreads normally work is that they're tight most of the time, and then they spend a short amount of time at very wide levels when people panic and and, and there's a recession. So it's not unusual to see credit spreads tight. I suppose the way we're looking at longer dated credit spreads at the moment is the fact that, look, in, in investment grade, longer dated credit spreads are lower than base rates. So you've got a kind of an inverted curve between the risk-free at the front end being a higher yield than a spread product at the longer end. Now, obviously, if the perfect soft landing comes through, you might find that the duration benefit of holding holding a long-term asset outweighs the initial starting yield on on the front end. And obviously, rates get cut and that reduces your return at the front end. So, you know, it, it, it's not saying that you shouldn't buy longer dated bonds or longer dated credit. But at the moment, from what we know at the moment, the risk reward, you know, it's rarely worked in history to buy long dated credit at a lower yield than the base rate. So it does feel to us that, you know, having a, a higher weighting at the front end it is not a bad trade at the moment on a risk reward basis. So yes, credit spreads do look thin. That's not unusual relative to history, but with the risk reward, it's not as if your alternative is buying, sorry, is investing at zero cash rate. You know, so it's important when you think of spread, what's the alternative? And if the alternative was uh, zero cash rate as it was two, three, four, ten years ago, then buying credit spreads at a thin spread might still be the best thing you can do out the curve. But when you've got a relatively good, attractive uh, alternative, then you know you have to look at the risk reward. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate that, Jim. I guess my sort of final question, and giving you an opportunity to offer some more detail in that very sort of cruel and pointy prefer or defer round uh, earlier on, just to be really keen to get your view on the risk reward of investment grade versus high yield at the moment, as you and your team see it. Yeah, I, th- I think high yield is probably a little bit more risky from the recession soft landing argument. Now, Clint, look, if you don't get a, a, a recession. Uh, and the soft landing comes through, the carry on on high yield is going to mean it outperforms. There's no doubt about that. I just think that at the moment, the the gap between the two, and also when you think about the gap, when yields are overall higher, that gap is less substantial than if uh, yields were zero across the board, where you've got to stretch for getting any yield, if that makes sense. So in, in this world, I think that you're not losing out too much by being, you know, long the front end of investment grade cash, uh, investment grade markets 
versus being having a bit more yield in in high yield with with all the risks that uh, there are at the moment. So look, it's not necessarily going to be the most spectacularly performing trade, but I think on a risk reward basis, I would still prefer investment grade over high yield. And it, look, high yield has got a lot of refinancing to do in the next couple of years because it hasn't been able to refinance. And the weakest companies in high yield haven't really been able to refinance in the last couple of years of, of high yields. Doesn't mean to say they won't be able to get refinanced, but you know, in the next few quarters, there's a lot of refinancing to do in the high yield market. And you need the market to be open and functioning for that to happen. At the moment, it is open and functioning, but uh, you're putting a lot of pressure on it, I think, going forward. Okay, well, uh, thanks so much, Jim. We'll certainly keep an eye on that uh, that high yield and that refinancing story. And look, appreciate all of the comments you've made. We really do appreciate your time. We could keep going and going, but uh, of course, we want to be gracious of both our audience time and your time, Jim. So thank you once again. It's been uh, a real treat. We want to wish you uh, and Liverpool FC all the best for the year ahead. If you want to hear more from Jim, please reach out to Deutsche Bank and negotiate your way onto his early morning redistribution list. I imagine most of you are on it, but if you're not, please uh, please do uh, uh, take effort to subscribe to it. It's a great way to start the day uh, on a par with Wordle, uh, perhaps. But uh, look, other than that, Jim, thanks again for being with us and to our audience. And we look forward to speaking to you all again next month. Goodbye. Listeners should be aware of the following investment risks. The value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Other important information for listeners. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication. Issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, Perpetual Park, Perpetual Park Drive, Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, RG91HH, UK. Authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.